Welcome to Utopian Horizons. Hello, my name is Paul and welcome to Utopian Horizons, a podcast where I cover a different utopia, dystopia, utopian thinker or movement in each episode. You'll notice that I uh, said my name there, which I don't normally do, but um, more than one person has mentioned that uh, I never say what my name is, and I guess there's no good reason not to say it, so I thought I'd just start doing it. Now, you might be listening to this episode on the Patreon feed, or you might be listening to this episode on the main feed, so just to explain, I'm putting this up first on the Patreon feed, um, and it's going to be up there for a while I don't know and then later on I'm gonna put it onto the main feed I wanted to put it on the Patreon feed first just because this is you know the type of thing this episode is the type of thing that uh, having uh, contributions from very kind people among you who who support me on there um, this is the kind of thing this helps me to do but also there have been a lot of people who have put in some work to contributing to this I wanted to as, as many people to hear it as possible so nice compromise there seemed to be put up on the Patreon feed first and then later put up on the main feed. This episode is an, is an attempt to do something I tried um, quite a while back when I did an episode on uh, Utopia and music and instead of doing my normal interview format I had um, multiple people contribute and um, I thought that worked quite nicely and I, I wanted to try it again so um, that's what this episode is. It's uh, I've asked um, each of my contributors to pick a utopian or dystopian video game city or location that that they find interesting some way, and and uh, to talk about that. And I'm very grateful to everyone who's contributed to this, who's who's come back with some some great stuff. So you'll be hearing from not necessarily in this order, but you'll be hearing from uh, Cameron Kunzelman from. Range Touch, who you might have heard on this podcast before, talking to me about Battle Royale video games. You have another former guest in Trevor Strunk from No Cartridge, talking about Mega Man. Uh, Lana Polanski, who hasn't been on the podcast before, but um, maybe I'll, I'll see about getting her on for, for a proper episode in the future. She is talking about a game called Space Funeral. I've also got Rosie from the Diane podcast. Again, you would have heard her on here before if you've been listening for a while when she came on to talk about Bloodborne. And last but not least, I've got another former guest in John Bales, who um, previously came on to talk to me about Grand Theft Auto V. And then we we had some discussion about whether he would come on to talk about um, Grand Theft Auto V or Persona 5. And I was kind of torn between the two, but thankfully I was able to get him to to um, help me out again and um, talk about Persona 5, um, uh, which is uh, set in a, in a version of Tokyo um, for this project. I might also jump back in at, at the end and uh, talk about um, a video game city or location myself. Uh, haven't, I'm not entirely sure whether I'll, I'll do that yet or not. Um, but yeah, maybe I'll be back at the end to uh, make my, my own contribution as well. Yeah, um, so yeah, the, you're going to be hearing a, a series of contributions on different um, video game utopian or, or dystopian locations. And um, I hope you enjoy it. And if you like this style of 
of podcast. Um, I'm not going to stop doing my my interview ones, of course. I'll keep doing that. But if you if you'd like to hear one of these um, kind of uh, uh, episodes now and again, then um, let me know. Um, tweet me at Utopian Horizons. Email me on Utopia Utopian Horizons Pod at gmail.com. And yeah, uh, support the Patreon at patreon.com slash Utopian Horizons, which um, helps to give me more more time to to do stuff like this. So um, I think that's all I've got to say up front. And now I will uh, leave you with my various contributors to talk about their chosen cities and uh, locations. Hello, my name's Rosie and I've hosted and produced Diane, which is a podcast about Twin Peaks and also The Shadow Trap, which is a show about monsters. I have a background in the anthropology of religion and today I'm going to talk about Dark Souls, a fantasy action game released in 2011 by From Software. The sad futures of dystopia are at their saddest when they're littered with relics of a time before. We might think of Winston Smith in 1984, puzzling over the nursery rhyme Oranges and Lemons, with its obscure references to farthings and the bells of St Clemens, signposts for a world that no longer exists, that Winston simply cannot recognise. The song has lost its meaning, it's become a thing, dull and mute. There's something really bleak about it. If you don't see yourself in continuation with the past, you can't really imagine your way to a future. Dark Souls is heavy with the silence of the past. It isn't necessarily the first place you might look to for dystopia. I think most of the time when you mention dystopia, people think of wet pavements and neon lights, not this world of foggy woods and rotting castles. But something has gone very wrong here indeed. We can describe Dark Souls as post-apocalyptic fantasy. It's set in a kingdom called Lordran, and at one point this was your standard knights and glory kind of situation. There were grand cities and gallant knights and castles big enough for giants. Now everything is falling away. The cities stand empty. The castles are home to monsters. The few knights that still travel the land are losing their minds. They don't really know why they're there, and crucially, neither do you. I've spent hundreds of hours playing this game and its sequels, and I only have a very vague sense of plot. This isn't because there isn't any plot to be found. The opening cinematic certainly suggests all kinds of high cosmic drama going on, and more clues to the fate of the world are scattered in the speech of characters you meet and the way items are described. You can piece it all together, I think, but you don't have to, and I've never really sought it out. Because whatever the nature of the fall that broke Lordran, the collapse that really stands out is the loss of meaning. This is a game about not understanding. Go on Reddit or Twitter and announce that you're going to play Dark Souls for the first time. What you'll be met with is this absolute cacophony of a thousand responses begging you not to look anything up. Please don't Google anything. The experience of being lost of being a stranger, is considered to be absolutely core to the essence of Dark Souls. The closest you come somewhere to somewhere familiar in this distant, difficult world is Firelink Shrine. This is a safe zone you can visit throughout the game, where some of the more sane travellers that you'll meet on your journey congregate. But even they aren't very helpful. Mostly they offer cryptic asides on the state of the world and laugh at you. 
nobody tells you anything particularly useful or even comprehensible. It would be nice, for instance, to know a bit more about the Black Knights, who are imposing figures you encounter from time to time, guarding obscure areas of the map. They move with much more purpose than the clumsy skeletons around them, and their armour is very fancy indeed. Clearly they have an important job to do, but what is it? Or consider the boss souls. When you kill a boss, which can be quite a difficult thing to do, you get its soul. This is an item that's worth a lot of in-game currency if you consume it. But if you don't consume it, you might be able to exchange it later on for a unique weapon. Would the weapon be worth more to you than the benefits of consuming the soul right away? Well, you don't know what the weapon is, so it's hard to say. You stagger on, full of doubt in an inhospitable world. I've described Dark Souls as a portrayal of a world where meaning has collapsed, but that's rather vague. If I were going to try and define what's being lost more specifically, I'd say it's losing its soul. Lordran is ancient and it's exhausted. The fire is fading and there simply isn't enough warmth to go around. So it's a bleak environment. But this is one of the most wildly beloved games of the last 10 years. It can't all be doom and gloom. There must be some joy to be found. So enough visions of hell, we can look for heaven. There's a well-known story that's told by the game's creative director, Hidetaka Miyazaki. When Miyazaki was young, his family didn't have a lot of money, so he would entertain himself with books that he'd borrowed from the library. He was particularly attracted to the Western fantasy books, but he couldn't read a lot of English, so he'd look at the pictures and he'd ponder the bits of text he could make out, and he'd puzzle out his own stories. He wasn't really reading the books like books, it's more like he was playing them like a game, and he found immense pleasure in this struggle to forge sense from confusion. In the soulless world of Lordran, you get to have a similar experience. You get to work out your own salvation. When I first played the game, I was so bad, it was ridiculous. It took me two weeks of playing, every evening and at weekends, to get past the first proper boss. I died and resurrected so many times that the short distance between the start of Undead Berg to the Taurus Demon became a marathon. There's a couple of soldiers, a a pikeman and a crossbowman, that stand guard at the start of this area. I resurrected so many times I gave them names. I started calling them Rod and Todd, and I'd greet them out loud as I ran past, off to die again. But you do get better. Eventually you beat the Taurus demon and the belfry gargoyles and the gaping dragon and all the rest. The world becomes smaller as you open shortcuts that reveal the isolated paths you've been wandering were actually huddled around each other so that even when you were stumbling in the depths of Blighttown, you were never that far from the strange company at Firelink Shrine. You were never going to save this world. But by the end of the game, you've rescued Lordran from meaninglessness. You understand the exhilaration of young Hidetaka Miyazaki as he pored over his beloved library books. Through your struggles, you have changed the character of the world and come to love it here. There's Rod, there's Todd, there's the place you first beat a Black Knight you can find your way to Firelink Shrine. You've poured yourself into this husk of a world and you start to grasp the value of a soul. Hi there, I'm Cameron Kunzelman. I am a video game critic 
and uh, I've worked in a lot of different places and capacities uh, for Waypoint, for Kotaku, for Polygon, um, and Paste, and a lot of different other places. Um, I have a PhD in moving image studies. I am part of Ranged Touch, which is a video game content creation thing uh, supported by Patreon. And I released a show called Game Study Study Buddies, where we read academic game studies books and then um, talk about them. Me and Michael Lutz um, also do uh, an actual play show and um, some other things, too, like Too Much Future, which is a show about the Fallout games. Um, I guess I should say you can check all that out at rangedtouch.com and uh, on Twitter at C Kunzelman, C-K-U-N-Z-E-L. M-A-N, um, to find out about all that stuff. But I'm not really talking about all of that today on this uh, episode of Utopian Horizons. Thanks so much again for having me, even though uh, I'm recording this and I'm not in dialogue with you directly. Anyway, but you're the listener, you're on the other end, so I'm going to get right into it. Um, I want to talk about uh, Trumbull County, um, or Trumbull Valley. I keep making this mistake, and I think that there's probably some sort of neat psychoanalysis reason. No, I'm kidding. There's no neat psychoanalysis reasons. But um, there's probably some reason I'm doing that. But Trumbull Valley is the landscape uh, in which the game State of Decay takes place. Um, State of Decay is a game from Undead Labs. It came out several years ago. And the basic idea behind it is uh, what if procedural narrative... um, put in context, or at least procedural characters put in context with written narrative um, in a zombie apocalypse, what could that produce? Um, It's a fairly unique game. It's got a lot of different uh, mechanics to it. I wouldn't say it's mechanically complex, but it just has a lot of different stuff going on at different times. Uh, You always have a base. That base always has certain material needs. That base can be upgraded. That base can be uh, augmented and improved by adding new members to your community. Um, And uh, generally the play of the game is you have some sort of um, immediate narrative goal. So there's someone to go rescue or there is some location to clear out um, or, you know, there's someone you need to go talk to and a bunch of kind of procedurally generated local goals. So you need to be able to find the supplies to run the uh, base or you need to uh, repair something that exists there. So it's this really cool kind of combination of uh, base management and uh, third person, I don't know, survival. Uh, you got to find food. You got to find guns. You have to find all the things in the zombie apocalypse in the United States uh, that you might imagine. Um, it's very much in conversation with the zombie genre in general. I have a lot of experience with the zombie genre and that I've played a lot of the games and I'm, you know, uh, maybe not complete, but I've, I've got a good baseline uh, bit of knowledge about um, about zombie media in general. Um, and much like many people, I don't have a lot of patience for it. Um, I think I, I think I've been burned out on it. I want to say so. I've played a lot of zombie games. I've been involved in a lot of zombie media, and I would say probably the only truly great zombie game is. State of Decay. And the reason it is so good to me, so so truly apex great. The Walking Dead's got great parts to it, um, but consistently, all the way through, all these little pieces, um, it's got to be State of Decay for me. And that's because you've always got this narrative goal, and you've always got these kind of short-term goals, 
But in the middle of that, there's all this kind of procedurally generated um, content that's around characters. Uh, I'm not the first person to, to kind of hone in on why this is so special. Back when the game uh, came out, Austin Walker at his old blog wrote a piece called State of Decay, Filling in the Gaps. You should be able to probably Google that up. Um, and uh, you could, if you go check that out, um, you can see Austin making a very similar argument to this, although I think we were making the argument at the same time and, and around in response to the same stimulus, which is that the characters that you play as, and you can play as any member of your community, um, the characters that you play as have their own traits and they have their own uh, distinct capabilities. Um, some of those are because they show up in that kind of pre-planned narrative. Um, some some of those are, are kind of, you know, just in the bag and ready to go. But other ones are just types of people that you might meet out in the world. Um, they're teachers or they're uh, uh, soccer players or they're former military members or whatever. Uh, there's a wide array of people who can be generated in this world and there's this really great kind of dual system where when you're out doing those short-term goals that I mentioned, um, looting, looking for things, uh, looking for uh, supplies to help you build your base to achieve your next big narrative goal, you can find people out there who are being attacked by zombies and you can go and help and rescue them and kind of clear the zombies out. You can recruit them. You can get them in your vehicle and drive them back to your base. And then they become a part of your community, but they also become someone you can play as. This is really cool, I think, uh, but this really doesn't have anything to do about what I was asked to talk about, which is um, kind of utopia or dystopia within the context of the video game. The reason I talk about characters first is that uh, Trumbull Valley is this kind of um, small, it, well, it's a big wide map, but it has these kind of communities in it. So the church that you begin the game in has a small community built around it, probably three or four streets with maybe a dozen houses or 15 houses total. And at the beginning of the game, you become the master of this space. You know it intimately because you have to dodge in and out of these buildings. And when you're getting these characters and bringing them in, um, each of them has different capabilities for getting around here. Some of them are going to be able to run for longer. Some are going to be able to carry more materials. Some are going to be able to be more accurate with weapons, things like that. As you progress through the game, you move to different areas in this map. The church that you started out at just might not be the best location for the rest of the game. And so you can move your entire community to somewhere else, but it takes a lot of effort and a lot of time. It takes an investment and truly getting across the map to begin with is a, it's, it's an accomplishment. It's difficult to do. It is scary to be inside the body of these characters and go out in a, difficult world uh in a violent world in a fairly delimited space in a valley right much like the the valley of uh in uh dawn of the dead um but you're in this kind of enclosed space with lots of possibility but that possibility is deeply in communication through the characters that you're finding and the characters you're communicating with and the characters that you're choosing to play as um, and Austin's piece that he wrote uh, in, I think this is maybe 2013 or something like that, uh, he talked about how those uh, differences between characters, 
those differences are what make the game interesting because you are taking a not optimally created person, right? This is not a character that you're building, but this is someone you found out in the world. You are taking them and putting them in a bad situation and using your kind of abilities as a player to try to figure out what the hell is happening. Um, that's how the whole game plays. And, and once you get through the whole game, right? Uh, surprise, surprise, you can beat the game. Um, and once you, surprise, surprise again, leave the valley uh, at the end of the game, you're making choices about, um, implicit choices, right? About what kind of characters are going to get you through this kind of big valley. What kind of characters are going to allow you to more easily embrace the space and, and make big changes. And so what I find so powerful about Trumbull Valley as a space is that it's so deeply in communication with its characters and that the characters come into their own. And, you know, they, they, they come into a, a particular kind of being um, and they feel more full than a, perhaps a more written character or more scripted character simply because there are so many pieces of them that you are then assembling as a player in relationship to the landscape. So the narrative cool parts of the game, the kind of character-focused cool parts, this procedural generation that's going on, I can't separate it from Trumbull Valley. And so that's why Trumbull Valley is my favorite, I guess, dystopia. But gosh, it's, it's a good one. Check that game out. It's really good. I was Cameron Kunzelman telling you all about a game. You should go check it out. It's really good. Uh, I hope you will. Let me know at C. Kunzelman on Twitter uh, what you think. John Bales. I'm a social theorist and games critic. Uh, I write a lot about ideology and neoliberalism and especially how popular culture uh, such as games interprets the demands placed on us by the modern world. Um, I'm the author of a book called Ideology in the Virtual City, Video Games, Power Fantasies and Neoliberalism, which was published recently by Zero Books. Uh, the book explores a number of games based in cities in terms of their ideological responses to modern demands. And one of the games I write about in the book is Persona 5, which is what I'm going to talk about today. So Persona 5 is a very big and complex game, uh, with lots of narrative strands and systems. So I'll try and keep to a simple overview. It's a Japanese role-playing game, or JRPG, which was originally released in 2016 in Japan and then in English in 2017. Um, as with a lot of JRPGs, it has a heavy emphasis on storyline, dialogue, characters, um, you know, and especially a kind of core party uh, around the main character of friends. Um, so in the game, you move around different locations, talk to people, purchase equipment, complete requests, improve your stats, try to level up and so on. Uh, where Persona games differ from a lot of JRPG, JRPGs is that they aren't set in fantasy or sci-fi worlds, but take place in present-day Japan. And one of the um, sort of crucial parts of the game is developing your social links, uh, which is choosing to spend free time with different individuals to try and uh, develop your friendships and even romantic relationships. Um, but aside from this, Persona games have this supernatural element in the form of a kind of parallel shadow dimension connected to the real world. 
And at points in the game, you'll explore parts of this world as well, which are sort of full of monsters, traps and treasure and so on uh, that you'll need to get through to advance. Um, so as for the city, Persona 5 is set in modern Tokyo. Um, almost the entire game takes place there with districts modelled on real life areas such as uh, the Shibuya Ward Commercial and Business District with its famous train stations and so on. Um, but this is not an open world. It's very different from many representations of cities in games. Usually in many games you'll find a big city or metropolis is it's a kind of symbol of modernity, liberal values, permissive living, uh, I don't know, loose morals, risk-taking, crime and freedom. Probably the biggest theme of all. You know, if you look at Grand Theft Auto or watchdogs or yakuza or something you know it's a, a place of free movement in choice in persona 5 the city is really a symbol of the denial of freedom or imprisonment it uses the motif of prison in various ways um, and it's i think it's utopian ideal is then to make the city become the place of opportunity and freedom that it's supposed to be it's not about resenting or wanting to change the demands of pressures of everyday modern life it's about how the old hierarchies get in the way of those demands. As for the, the story itself and how the game works, so you play a, a young uh, well, a guy in his late teens uh, who's been expelled from his rural school and sent to live in Tokyo with a family friend um, because he was, well, unfairly, it turns out, convicted for assaulting some important man back in his hometown. And he's been put on probation. Um, so any further kind of misbehaviour will seem put in jail. So at first you're heavily monitored and aren't able to do much. You go to and from your new school, aren't allowed out at nights. Um, but as things progress, you gain access to more areas and activities. Um, so when you move around the city in Persona 5, like I say, it's not like an open city. You don't travel freely in a continuous space. You select an area and are transported there. And then each district of the city is basically a small enclosed area containing points of prescribed interaction such as conversation or shopping or you know work or leisure activities. Time is also monitored, it's divided into days and then into the sections of each day, morning, afternoon and evening phases, each of which will give you the chance to do something. Sometimes it's enforced, like you have to attend school at a particular time, or sometimes you can choose an activity which could be anything from a part-time job to eating in a restaurant or uh, spending, choosing a, a friend to spend some time with and, and develop your bond with that friend. So really the test is really how you manage these time slots and try and balance uh, developing your character's skills and bonds um, by prioritising different things. And, you know, even though the game does open up as you go on, there's still this kind of atmosphere of assumed criminality, you know, so minor freedoms that are given are a privilege to be earned through sort of meeting targets and good behaviour, um, you know, and you're always kind of enclosed by the, the space, this, the spatial restrictions and the temporal restrictions. The other side of the game, the game's supernatural side, is called the metaverse, and this is where you're apparently responsible for some kind of re other kind of rehabilitation that goes beyond uh, the character's personal issues. Um, this is a world that's made up of the unconscious cognition of city inhabitants or the deeply repressed fantasies that motivate their behaviour beneath conscious perception. You know, it's the city's unconscious or id. It's a very uh, concept from psychoanalysis, of course, and Persona as a series often draws on psychoanalytic concepts, especially Carl Jung's theories. Um, so in the, in the metaverse, there are these places called palaces, that represent the unconscious desires of um, particular individuals who are in positions of authority who abuse their power. And you go into these 
palaces, you fight the monsters within them and steal the object that represents this corrupt individual's desire and that changes their behaviour in real life. Um, to do this you unleash your personas which is this um, embodiment of the rebellious part of yourself that is usually repressed by social norms so you, know, you unleash your rebellious side and as the game continues you target more and more of these uh, corrupt figures in the reality by entering the metaverse to change their cognition and forcing them to confess their crimes in reality. So, you know, there's obviously a lot going on here. Um, you know, first of all, if we talk about the city itself, you know, how it portions time and space into segments, um, sort of manifest a limited choice and obligation. You know, it's impossible to do everything, at least when you first play, the first time you play through the game. So you're having to prioritize everything. And in that sense, it sort of resembles a ordinary modern life. You know, there are tons of things you should do, not enough time to do them, and it's your responsibility to try and fit them all in. Um, but this isn't, you know, painted as an issue in Persona 5. I think that is very much the game's utopian vision. And it's what gets in the way of that lifestyle that's at issue, you know, embodied by these corrupt characters. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that's, all, that's interesting in, in the game is, is its presentation. You know, this Persona games have this kind of slick anime visual style with like, you know, interesting characters, brilliantly designed characters and these addictive soundtracks, you know, here it's all sort of acid jazz tunes. So even when you're doing these kind of mundane routine things, it's like this sort of underlying force that's just ready to kind of burst free. You know, it's the potential of your character and the city if it could break out of prison and, and you know, run smoothly. Um, so on the other hand, you've got, you know, the metaverse, the city's repressed, unconscious. Um, Towards the end of the game, it transpires that the mysterious you know, rehabilitation you've been charged with uh, is to rehabilitate the whole of society from its corruption and apathy. And you discover at the heart of the metaverse is the sub the unconscious of the, the majority of people, and it takes the form of, of a prison itself. Um, you know, everyone is... That's what it's saying, is everyone's going through their normal routines without caring about how things are run. Um, and they become prisoners to these corrupt individuals, elite individuals. But the point is that these are kind of happy prisoners. They accept this corruption and injustice as long as they don't have to take responsibility for the state of things. So what you have to do in the end is find a way to inspire these people out of their apathy to sort of beat the final uh, threat to the city. So it's, you know, there's quite a sort of radical political message of social change here. Um, that sees the elite as the problem and puts the onus on everyone, uh, not only leaders, to make that change happen. But I still think as a utopian ideal it's rather limited and doesn't actually question how we understand you know, what's good for society. It's in the end a reformist concept of change, I think, that appears unrealisable because it doesn't deal with underlying social issues. You know, it never really sort of looks at how the institutions themselves are at fault it's the cynical individuals that abuse them and the public apathy that lets them get away with it. Uh, what's missing here is any explanation of why people, are, why people are so corrupt or apathetic today specifically. Uh, you know, is this something that's specific to the modern city? And, you know, what if the apathy is a result of modern life, the modern routines that the game is actually um, sort of basically celebrating? You know, there's, there's consumer demands, the demands of work and so on. So, you know, the game may be encouraging sort of greater democratic participation, but I don't think it can, can consider the extent to which, you know, neoliberal, political, financial, legal and cultural institutions themselves 
cause our disengagement in the first place. So it's, it's, in the end, it's a, a very psychological treatment of politics where reform revolves around lots of individuals committing to self-reflection and taking responsibility for their desires rather than considering how these desires are shaped by norms, institutions and political movements. Um, and what's kind of surprising in the end, given the sort of the political message, is how kind of conservative and dogmatic it is, ultimately. Um, the idea of stealing someone's desires, for example, is kind of more problematic, I think, than the game recognises. You know, going into someone's unconscious to actually alter their personal makeup, you know, it's kind of, you know, what right do you have to do this, to impose this, even if they are causing harm to people, you know? Um, and then, and what are the ideals that your your party is imposing, you know? And I think they're quite conventional in the end. You know, you look at the way the game, it's daily routines which reinforce social conventions of, you know, of work-leisure routines, doing your job, relationships, consumerism, and so on. They are kind of the, the hook of the game in a way, and the, and the metaverse, the bit where you go in, you know, you battle evil and change the world, is almost it's less interesting than taking part in those routines. It's kind of the, the necessary thing you have to do in order to make your freedom in the real world possible, your freedom to do those ordinary things possible. And I also think if we look at the way certain groups are represented in the game, um, you know, there are very conservative ideas here, you know, the, the way a lot of female characters, for example, are, are written and drawn as varying types of dating material, basically, from the male protagonist, uh, and the way sort of courtship rituals are reduced to, you know, selecting what kind of dialogue or gifts you think this person will like, you know, which sort of turns a, the woman into a puzzle, in effect, uh, which you have to find the correct code to unlock. When you think that, you know, Persona 5 kind of sets out this message of social change and self-expression and non-conformity, experiences of the goals of your characters, you know, should make them more politically engaged than this. And the representation of people should be more um, liberating, I think, you know, less constricted by, by convention. Um, so in the end, I would still say Persona 5 is it's inspiring as a kind of call to action um, you know, of, of the downtrodden against the elite, and it demonstrates that the first step to breaking free from prison is recognizing that you're in one. Um, it's almost works as a representation of class struggle as well, in between the rulers and the prisoners. Um, but it doesn't quite go far enough. It doesn't step back and look at the system. It feels like it escapes one prison without noticing the bigger prison around it that it remains stuck in. Uh, it wants to make Tokyo run smoothly in its current form, not revolutionise it in a way that would free the most marginalised and social groups. Um, so I think that's kind of the main thing that I would take from it in the end. So that's it. If you're interested in reading more about Persona 5 and other games, please do get my book, Ideology in the Virtual City, Video Games, Power Fantasies and Neoliberalism, which is out now. Uh, and you can also follow me on Twitter. It's at JohnBales3. Um, and thanks for listening. Hi, my name is Lana Polanski. I am an art critic, writer, artist, game maker, and streamer. 
I write freelance these days mainly for art-oriented publications such as Rhizome.org and German magazine WASD, as well as independently at my own site, sufficientlyhuman.com. I also stream on Twitch slash Mechopoetic, and you can catch my show, The Freak Museum, once a week where I play really weird games. If you'd like to support my work, you can at patreon.com slash my name, and you can also follow me on Twitter at Mechopoetic. I would really appreciate both. Today, I'm going to take a few minutes to talk about one of those really weird games in the context of dystopias. One of my favorites, Space Funeral, by Irish developer Stephen Gilmurphy, better known as the Catamites. This game was released in 2010 and uses the RPG Maker 2003 engine, and is considered by me and many others in the independent game space as an incredibly influential work of art. The game follows the story of a boy named Philip. The first thing to note about Philip is that he is always crying. He wails and sobs constantly, whether he's buying items in a town shop or while in the heat of battle. The second thing to note about him is that he's always wearing his pajamas. We meet Philip when he awakens in Scum Village, only to discover that his entire hometown has been corrupted. That is to say, the entire face of the world is covered with graphical glitches, deformed figures, garish colors, and general sights of mutilation and disfigurement. The trees sigh and slump despondently, the river running through Scum Village has turned to blood. The world is dotted with these huge, horribly mangled heads that stare at the player as they explore any given area of the game. Philip is compelled to leave Scum Village to discover the source of this corruption, and in doing so comes across his companion Leghorse, who, as the name suggests, is a horse composed of severed legs, bloody stumps, and all. The game fundamentally plays like any turn-based RPG, as the player moves along the critical path from Scum Village through the Blood Cavern, through enigmatic and mysterious levels disguised as geographical locations. Think Dragon Quest, Earthbound, Final Fantasy, and so on. Philip and Leghorse obtain better and better weapons and items and fight enemies such as the Skull Crab and the Moam Beast. What makes Space Funeral so distinctive isn't so much the gameplay itself as it is the aesthetic of the world, which, rather than relying on the standard 16-bit pixelated graphics of conventional RPGs that it makes reference to, instead employs a totally unique hand-drawn art style that's very loose and expressionist and kind of grotesque. It lands somewhere between, like, Egon, Sheila, Goya, and Klasky Kashupo. The game is full of these little references that reach outside of games into other areas of art and poetry and music. The soundtrack is a moody mix of down-tempo surf guitar and Baroque pop as charming as it is sinister. So much of Space Funeral is just about appreciating every weird and gross little detail that's in this sandbox, that you almost forget what your goal actually is. It is only toward the final act of the game that Philip, who at this point has likely been turned into a blue fish as punishment for his hubris by a genie that he frees from a lamp he took from a so-called king of crime after defeating him in battle. Only after all of this do we even learn where we are supposed to have been going all along, to the city of forms dominated by the overzealous artist Moon. Upon arriving in the frozen over city of forms, Philip and Leghorse enter Moon's lair, where we see what appears to be a museum exhibit displaying a variety of figures we met along our journey, placed here as works of art. That's because that's what they are, created by Moon, who had become so obsessed with creating a perfect world of forms that she decided to corrupt the land in order to draw new inspiration. Before defeating her, again in turn-based battle, she revels in the fact that she did this because her own obsession with perfect representation turned out to be a futile exercise. 
So she created this dystopia as a way to confront the fact that no amount of photorealism in art will ever come close to capturing the depth and magic of the actual thing it's trying to represent. Upon defeating Moon, the world returns to normal, appearing exactly as any other 16-bit pixelated RPG would, and Leghorse, also known as Prince Horus, and Philip are no longer bloody or crying. They have also been restored to their proper forms the kind of generic-looking heroic anime knight you might expect to see in a knockoff turn-based fantasy RPG. There are two other space funeral games, which I unfortunately don't really have the time to talk about, but there's a lot that can be said about how the first one serves not just as a love letter to the other, more established RPGs it makes reference to, but also as a parody of them. I'm not sure that Space Funeral intends to excoriate just the games themselves, but rather a tendency in games culture and criticism to try to justify video games as art, while also maintaining a really conservative standard for what qualifies not just as a good video game, but even definitionally as a video game. This game doesn't really depart terribly from the genre in terms of its gameplay conventions, but it does push certain boundaries of aesthetic representation and storytelling, which in 2010 would have seemed pretty novel, even revelatory. A thing to remember about this period is that the question of whether or not games qualify as art was a heated and controversial discussion amongst critics. Roger Ebert famously declared in 2010 that games could never be art, sending off a shockwave of defensiveness, but also a little bit of self-reflection for developers like the Catamites, who was actually written on this topic, and who had already spent his young career fighting an uphill battle against the restrictive standards of expression imposed both by the industry and by gamers themselves, who often seek validation for their medium as an art form but are often unwilling to confront the things they consume critically or consider alternative perspectives or styles. Space Funeral, therefore, is a dystopia only to those who view these alternatives as a corruption of the medium they hold so dear. That's maybe a bit of a glib thesis on the game, but I'm running out of time so I think I'll leave it at that, and highly recommend it to anybody interested in experiencing this pretty important piece of outsider digital art from a prolific and fascinating period of independent game development. Hey, Utopian Horizons audience. My name is Trevor Strunk. I uh, run the podcast over at No Cartridge, uh, and I've been on the show before, but it was really nice of Paul to welcome me back uh, to talk a little bit about my uh, favorite Utopian uh, game setting, uh, which maybe not my favorite of all time, um, but definitely up there and probably tied for first is um, the setting in the Mega Man games. Um, uh, so Paul's uh, prompt in this was uh, talking about, uh, or was asking us to think about utopian or dystopian games, right? And what I like about the Mega Man games is that they straddle this line between the two. You know, it's not quite clear whether uh, the world that uh, Dr. Light has come up with or that uh, exists before, if you're thinking about the Mega Man X games, uh, that Sigma enters into, like, it's not clear whether these worlds are particularly good or bad bad due to the appearance of robots right um we hear a lot about the robot masters and we hear a lot about the uh inclusion of uh mega man uh rock and roll his sister and you know rush the dog and all of these like helpful little automated things um but also i mean the the story of dr wiley is that he gets the robot masters to revolt which kind of implies that they are not being treated particularly well and so, you know, this this 
weird kind of um, uh, connection between robots that can think and feel and robots who are automated and or who lend themselves to automation in such a way that it helps the uh, people of the world in Mega Man games um, kind of, you know, get by uh, is is really interesting, especially because, like, you know, you look at some of the characters like Cutman or especially Mega Man 1, right? Cutman, Gutsman, like, these are character Bomb Man. You're talking about, like, lifting things and exploding things, which would go into mining and... Uh, you know, uh, cutting, of course, being something that you might be able to do with textiles and stuff, right? Like, this is not particularly something that is abstract. This is labor that these robots would be doing. Um, and so you sort of have to ask yourself, like, this entire world, you see, like, two humans, um, and they're Dr. Lightly and Dr. Light. One's very good and your dad, and one is very bad and a mean man who turned Dr. Light's robots bad. But the rest of the world is kind of unclear, right? You see these massive, massive places that are tuned to the various robot masters that seem something like manufacturing, even in the X games, right? Um, in the X games, I guess it seems a little more like a place where they might live, um, which, again, kind of ties into the habitat element of animals, um, which exists in the X games. Uh, you know, Storm Eagle, Boomer Kawanger, the the cockroach, uh, the chameleon, uh, uh, I can't remember his name right off the uh, something chameleon. But yeah, like like these characters exist as animals in the X Games and have habitats. The creatures, the robots exist as um, you know workers and have little factories in the Mega Man games. And your job as Doctor Light's robot is to go in, kill a bunch of other robots, blow them up, so that well, it's not entirely clear they won't take over the world. They won't destroy humanity. Like it's not totally clear what the end game is of. Of Dr. Wily, for instance, um, even if the end game of Sigma is something like, you know, robot takeovers of the world. Um, the other thing that's not clear in these worlds is how much, uh, how many people are actually left. And I, I guess this sort of ties in. I'm, I'm going a little bit off script because I'm talking about the game itself, but I think this kind of goes into what, um, what Paul was asking and what some of the other uh, guests may have been talking about in terms of like actual architecture in games, like the stuff you see in the background, it's not particularly good for humanity, particularly in the X games, right? Like the, the background seems like mostly destroyed. Um, it seems almost post-apocalyptic post human. Um, in the Mega Man games, you see a lot of areas that have nothing to do with humanity. Getting to the point in Mega Man four, where, you know, because you don't have to have people in it, uh, the game kind of just, goes away from factories and goes into natural areas. I'm thinking of, like, Pharaoh Man lives in a pyramid with sand in it. Um, there's always these water levels, right? Like, these are these are levels that don't have to have people in them. And they have these, like, magnificent kind of, like, fascinating, amazing grids of um, steel beams or strange tubes or, like, electric, um, you know, conductors and stuff like that, some of which uh, serve as... Um, barriers, some of which serve to, uh, I don't know, just like give set dressing to the world. And you're, you're kind of going through these areas and you're looking at all this amazing architecture. And the, the funny thing about it is that it actually has nothing to do with the people who would enjoy the aesthetics of it. It is supposed to be purely functional. Now, is it purely functional? I suppose that's a, a fair question. Um, I don't think it probably is. Uh, I think I think you probably have a lot of aesthetics going on in the Mega Man world, and I, I you know I don't think anyone would disagree with that. Um, however, if you suspend your belief enough, um, it almost certainly could be 
an instance of, yeah, like, um, this is just a world that is, um, I'm trying to think how to say this. This is a world that is uh, purely a world of robots, purely a world where robots live and robots uh, can can thrive and not a world where humans should be. Um, and to imagine like a game that urges you to, I don't know, be uh, a robot fighting for people and then not show you any of the people that you're fighting for outside of Dr. Light and maybe Roll, who I think think is sometimes a human it, it, it's just fascinating i mean it's like a totally interest it's a totally weird thing to ask a player to um to commit to right it's a totally strange thing to say like yeah look like you have to you have to be willing to <laughs> to fight uh for these people that like you're never gonna really see um it's not like a uh it's not an obvious sort of like you know save this family or something like that it truly is like I don't know, someone that exists in some town, in some place that you as Mega Man are never, ever going to meet. I find that so interesting, right? Like, it, it, the world seems destroyed. Everything seems broken. The whole thing seems like it is just a shambles. And there you are, a robot, too, trying to fight to maintain some human control um, in a world that seems to have totally left humans behind, uh, both in terms of its mechanics, um, as we've discussed, and also its, like, architecture. Um, there's no place for people in Mega Man, and yet it's important that we pretend there is because it's about fighting for people. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know how much this necessarily has to do with the architecture. Uh, in my mind, it has a lot to do with it. And maybe that's just because the architecture in the game is is level design, right? Um, the idea of these ver- the verticality in the levels, the, the way that the levels, like, imagine a sort of space for uh, production and for the robot masters and... You know, just like basically ways in which the levels encourage you to imagine a world for robots and without people. And yet the plot of the game kind of urges you on towards thinking like, well, there has to be some reason I'm killing these robots. And it's because they're out of control and they're going to hurt people. You know, why does Mega Man care about people when there are no people in the world? Uh, It could actually just have to do with how uncreative the game is about its plot. Um, It's an older game. It wouldn't be shocking. Uh, However... I think also it's just that um, it's the kind of game that you, uh, you know, you are in as a, um, I'm trying to think of how to say this, as a person who, or as a character who is a tool. You're a tool as well. And so, like, you're being instrumentalized against these people, or robots, excuse me, that are also being instrumentalized. And in the end, it's just a lot of orders being given and and people getting hurt, and, and and the reasons for it are sort of lost in the same way that the actual story of the world is lost. Um, and I guess this kind of ambiguity is really the story of Mega Man, like why the areas are so fascinating, but why the lore of Mega Man, especially compared to other games like Mario or, or Heaven Help Us Sonic, you know, are so different. I, I think that might explain why, like the ambiguity of it, the, the way that none of it really makes all that much sense, and you just kind of have to turn around and say, like, all right, like, who are the next robot masters i have to (laughs) find i think that is kind of cool like i think that's kind of the appeal so yeah i mean these are a lot of thoughts but i hope it sort of fits the bill for you guys and i i hope it also fits the bill for paul who has a wonderful podcast here um in that this is kind of an end of the year uh thing that i'm recording anyway Uh, when i'm recording it anyway i i just want to thank paul for all the times he's had me on and um just uh recommend his work as highly as possible uh, thank you. Uh, you can listen to me more if you like this rambling and uh, postulating over at No Cartridge. And um, yeah, happy gaming.
тоже. It's me again jumping back in to make a little contribution at the end. So I had a couple of possible cities uh, or video game places in mind to talk about but um, I decided to pick an obvious one. Um, all my guests have done the, the clever stuff so I, I don't need to do that and I've decided to pick um, Midgar from Final Fantasy 7. Now ahead of doing this I'm gonna I, I think I have to give some credit to um, Nick Rubin, who wrote an article a while ago um, about Final Fantasy VII, uh, kind of about some of the stuff I'm going to be talking about. I mean, a lot of this stuff is uh, things I've already had in my mind, but um, he made some nice points in that, which um, I may inadvertently repeat. So um, I just wanted to uh, mention that up front. Um, And if you you want to find that, um, that was on VG247. But anyway, um, so yeah, Midgar is the beginning location from Final Fantasy VII, a very famous location in games. I think partly just because of the fact that it was you spent the f- quite a significant portion of the beginning of the game yet there, instead of doing that RPG thing, that JRPG thing of, well, sorry, Final Fantasy VII does do that JRPG thing of having a big world map with lots of smaller locations and then when you get to those locations then they um then you like visit the town or village proper but final fantasy 7 made you spend gives few hours in midgar um before it kind of opened up and and by virtue of that it really helped it seem massive but i think there are other reasons why it's memorable um and what i really like about it is so this does Final Fantasy VII and Midgar specifically does a, a couple of things I like. I like, uh, or I'm interested in um, leftist. What I would say is leftist politics, even in a distorted form, finding their way through in popular culture. Um, I mean, to give an example, I've talked about before. I've talked about like how RoboCop is a, is a, you can read. Um, kind of left-wing messages in there. You can read um, reactionary messages in there. It's kind of a, a mix of things. Um, I think you probably I haven't played Final Fantasy VII for a while, but you could probably say the same thing. I'm not describing it as like a, a committed, like hardcore leftist video game, but certainly it has anti-corporate themes, environmental themes um, that come through in the game. As I say, even even in a distorted form, but I think it's really valuable when people or uh young people in particular who i mean young people now probably aren't playing final fantasy 7 but of course when it came out in like 97 i think um to be introduced to to those themes i think is a a cool thing what i also like is having um themes or ideas like literalized in architect in the architecture of a place which is is what midgar does so this is um, a dystopian city. It has um, effectively two layers. So 
Right in the centre of the city is uh, Shimra headquarters, the corporation that effectively owns the city and they're like the main um, antagonistic force at the beginning of the game. So they have this large corporate headquarters that you can see in the middle and radiating out from that are um, plates and then there are um, there are things built on top of those plates. Underneath the plates are slums. So this this I like the way that this gives you this shows you exactly what the power dynamics in this city are. The people underneath the plates are clearly the the downtrodden, the the, the powerless, the exploited. They have had um, because of the plates above their heads, like literally blocking out sunlight. So that literally kind of blocking out like hope if you're following the kind of fairly obvious symbolism and uh, of course the, the headquarters in the middle dominating everything else shows you who's in control of this everything radiate radiates out from the center of that so that is at the, the center of sea that's the lexus of power and control the uh the people who live on the plates above are connected to that and yeah the, the people uh that live underneath it are, are the ones that kind of hold it up and um, oppressed by it so yeah it's really um you can just kind of look at the city and uh how it's organized and how it's laid out and understand the dynamics of power it's a very good uh, very kind of simple way of um showing you that and i think that's uh cool i think it's notable that we don't spend any time on the so we did we there's some bits of the game where you have to like invade the shimmer headquarters but we don't really see the more prosperous part of the city that often we spend almost all our time in Midgar in the slums which kind of places our um helps to place our sympathies with, with those people I think so these are all people living in kind of um yeah repurposed uh buildings made of like repurposed junk and kind of you know eking out existence and like even though Final Fantasy 7 is at times I don't know it can be at times quite stupid or silly and the 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 kind of um symbolism here is very heavy-handed but i think it works in terms of it does uh, make you feel a sympathy with these people it's a very clear representation of corporate power and i think um and this is a point that um nick made in that article that I, i mentioned before it kind of has um influences or elements of other sci-fi like you can see a little bit of cyberpunk in there but um, cyberpunk cities tend to be uh, the, the dystopia tends to be compensated it's with some kind of cool thing like you have a I don't know you have an augmented arm where you have the you can do cool hacking on the internet and like steal stuff and, and all these things like the people in the slums of Midgar they don't get that even they, these are just people in poverty <laughs> so it, it doesn't um yeah, dress that up in any way. It doesn't um, complicate that social dynamic. And sure, you can say that that you might be able to say that likes nuance in some way. But to me, it may, it, I think it makes it a more um, real depiction of um, the kind of society that's being created by um, corporate power and the, and the kind of way that inequality manifests as a result of that. So I think that's good. Um, Again, another point that, that Nick made was to, to talk about how um, the so within the fiction of the of the game, the districts, the the slum districts, they're called like sector one, sector two, sector three, sector four. They used to have um, names, 
they used to be separate towns and villages, but under this kind of corporate rule, they've they've lost, and it's one that's been brutally enforced. It's kind of each place has lost its identity. Um, the people there kind of can't remember um, what they used to be called. That's been lost to time. I think this speaks to a kind of anxiety about what what uh, corporate culture or neoliberal capitalism, I guess, does to cities in terms of making them these very um, soulless places that don't have an identity, that don't have a, a connection to the people that live there through gentrification or whatever, they can cut themselves off from communities so that the things that you find there are no longer an expression of that community and their their culture and, and what have you. They become just these um, very repetitive spaces, um, like postmodern spaces. Um, and again, that's slightly different to what you'd see in other sci-fi because, like I said, they don't have the... They're not being uh, bought off with the kind of... With, you know, capitalist culture, um, like they're not being bought off with consumerism and uh, cool coffee shops and bars and stuff like that because that stuff doesn't exist in the sums. But nevertheless, I think it speaks to a, a similar anxiety, this idea of um, the kind of soul of a place and its culture being stripped out. So yeah, that's what I like about Final Fantasy VII and Midgar. Um, I think that was probably a bit rambly, but like I said, this idea of... Um, literalizing a political view into a place into the way it's organized and structured even if that ends up uh in some way simplifying things i think is is uh, a cool thing to do and I, and I like it in this case and i think midgar is a very memorable and effective location um because of that so that's the end of this episode um i want to say a big thank you to everyone that contributed to this uh, really appreciate all those people giving up their time and coming up with some cool ideas and uh, I very much enjoyed listening to everything everyone had to say as I was editing this together uh, and obviously please go and check out the the various projects that all those people have that they they mentioned during their contributions so as, as I mentioned this will be out on the Patreon feed first when you maybe listen to this and later on the main feed so I have I have nothing to say about what's coming next because I don't know when I'm putting this out on the main feed. So it'll be in between other stuff. So what's next at this point? I have no idea. But um, regardless, I'll, I'll obviously be returning to doing uh, my normal interview format. But if you do, as I said up at the top, if you do enjoy me doing this style of episode, then, then let me know. I can try and do um, some more. If you want to get in touch about that or anything else, as always, Utopian Horizons on Twitter, utopianhorizonspod at gmail.com is my email, uh, facebook.com slash utopianhorizons. Always good to hear from people. And it'd be really um, useful if you give me a rating or review on whatever you're listening to this on. And if you want me to help support me to keep um, doing things like this, then head to patreon.com slash utopianhorizons. This won't make sense to those of you listening to this on the main feed, but for those of you listening on the Patreon, uh, Merry Christmas. I hope you have a nice break and I'll, I'll see you back again next year. Uh, thank you for listening and I'll be back soon. Bye-bye.